I'm Rebecca Lavoy, and this is You Can't Make This Up. You Can't Make This Up is the podcast where we uncover the true stories behind your favorite Netflix documentaries and films. On today's episode, we take a closer look at the Netflix documentary series, Sins of Our Mother. I would have never thought you would have ever done something like this. What is it that you think that I've done? Today, we're talking to director Sky Borgman. Lori Vallow was known to friends and families as a devoted mother of three, a loving wife and a woman of God. But then things changed. Lori joined a doomsday religious community. Then her ex-husband was shot after a family confrontation and the wife of her lover died under mysterious circumstances. Lori's face was in the news after two of her kids went missing, all while she was on a carefree Hawaiian honeymoon. Now she faces trial in connection with their murders. There's what appears to be a grave. The difficulty, I think, for us was the way these human remains were found. So it was kind of partially burnt human remains. A listener note, the following interview with director Sky Borgman was recorded in August of 2022 and doesn't take into account any recent developments pertaining to the case. And I'm joined by one of my favorite directors, Sky Borgman. Welcome back to You Can't Make This Up. Ah, thanks, Rebecca. It's nice to be chatting with you again. Before we talk about Sins of Our Mother... Huge congratulations on two other big hits on Netflix this summer. Most recently, the documentary, I Just Killed My Dad. Before that, there was the much-talked-about Girl in the Picture. And fans of this podcast got to hear a multi-part companion podcast series in this feed about that. Is 2022 the year of Sky Borgman or what? I don't know. It seems it seems like it might might be that way. It wasn't intended to be that way. I um, had these projects sort of going on for a few years, and because of COVID, and things got delayed, and then things got rushed, and then all, all of a sudden, somehow, three movies came out in three months, and it's been crazy and wonderful. And um, and I really appreciate Netflix for <laughs> for just being who they are and making it all happen. So the last time you were on, you can't make this up. It was to talk about your instant classic, Abducted in Plain Sight. How have you evolved as a filmmaker since then? I think there's, you know, I think Abducted in Plain Sight taught me a lot. Each of these films and these series, you know, teach me a lot about how to be a storyteller and how to take care of the participants in the stories and about the stories that I want to be telling. And um, I've certainly gotten to a point where I like stories that, have the opportunity to dive a little bit deeper into issues that can tell stories about women, that can tell stories about how we got to a certain place and that aren't looking at the typical sort of serial killer and sort of putting him up on a platform or giving him sort of the spotlight to really be looking at survivors in a, in a bigger way. One of the things I noticed, a common thread through your stories, and I'm wondering if this is what, you know, 
attracts you or what you look for. A lot of your stories are sort of about family interiority and kind of what happens uh, sometimes with families that are isolated or people that are isolated inside the walls of like a dysfunctional family structure. Is that the kind of story that attracts you? Definitely. I mean, I think that you can look, you can look at a family and you can see so many different dynamics of humanity really within a family, both, you know, all the good and all of the bad. Um, I think that can certainly happen in many, many other places, but, but the family sort of gives you a little tiny sort of microcosm of looking at this that then expands sort of out into the world. It seems that early in her adulthood, uh, Lori was a pretty vivacious, maybe attention-seeking center stage kind of adult, uh, even appearing on Wheel of Fortune. Her telling of the story was God told her that she was going to be on Wheel of Fortune. She had to have that extra validation of like, no, she heard from God. Hi, how you doing, Lori? Uh, Lori Ryan from Austin, Texas. Um, What were your impressions of her at that point in her life? I mean, I think that's absolutely true. Like she wanted attention. I think, I think that's, that continued to be true throughout her life. I mean, I think she was certainly like that, you know, before she was arrested. I think she's like that now too. I mean, I think that if she could have more attention, if she was, you know, could have cameras on her in, in jail, I think that she would probably be doing that. I think she always wanted and was seeking something more. And I think that's probably what ended up leading her to Chad Daybell as well. Like she was looking for this, higher spirituality in her relationships. Um, And when she couldn't get that, when she met Chad, she thought maybe this is finally it and was really willing to go in that a thousand percent. I just kept thinking, you know, with her being on Wheel of Fortune, kind of put, you know, putting herself on stages uh, kind of over and over again, I just kept thinking in a different world, she could have been like an Instagram mom, right? I mean, there's, there's so many other paths that this could have gone in if she was in a different circle, if she lived in a different place, if she had a different mindset. And then this was the path that she ended up taking was this doomsday cult path. Yeah. I mean, she would have been a great Instagram mom. I mean, I think she would have had like a huge following. I think we wouldn't be talking right now if she was an Instagram mom, you know, and I think she would have been really successful at it. But it does beg the question, like what, what made her choose this path? And, and look, I don't know that anybody will ever know exactly, you know, the makeup of what Lori Vallow's DNA is that sort of set her on this path to the murdering of her two children. Um, allegedly, right? I mean, we don't know what's happened, right? Like we don't know what is going to be decided in court because the trial is coming up in 2023. And I'm sure a lot more information will come out once that trial happens. But but we know that she that she did start following a very, very, very divergent path. And we know she had a hand in the murder of her two children and her husband. So there was this snapshot at one point in time of this family, Lori and Charles, with Colby, Tylee, and JJ. So people probably thought this was a pretty typical household, but was it? I don't think it was. I don't think it was ever really a typical household. I think I think that they were pretty good at at presenting themselves as uh, one big happy family. But I think that there was a lot going on behind closed doors. Um, but I think there was a lot of arguing. I think there was a lot of, a lot of expectations that impossible to meet by Charles and maybe even, you know, from Charles to Lori. But I think, I think signs were there. I don't think anybody could have ever imagined what would happen happened, but I think there were definitely signs there. 
One of the most surprising pieces of tape in your documentary was that stand-up comedy routine by Lori's brother, uh, Alex, in which he talks about assaulting her abusive ex-husband, Ryan, with a taser. This is a true story. I thought that my ex-brother-in-law was a, a pedophile, so I took a stun gun and I discharged it right in his nutsack. <laughs> and, and I did And then years later, he'll shoot Charles, apparently in self-defense, as as he claims. Um, What do these incidents tell us about this brother and sister relationship? I think what they tell us is that that Alex was was very committed to Lori and that he um, would have done did do what she asked him to do. There was definitely a conspiracy there to go over to Charles' house. And that's, look, when the all of the police records came out from Arizona, it tells us that it was, they conspired to do that. They planned that. It wasn't something that just happened. And it was Lori really getting Alex to do her bidding. And that has been clear, I think, for their the majority of their relationship. Do you have any insight onto why the house was completely empty? <laughs> it's just something I was curious about. It's weird, isn't it? Like you see that body cam footage, you're like, why is this house empty? I mean, they just moved <laughs> into it, so they hadn't really had okay. much of a chance to move in. Although I know from previous experience, like when I have just moved into a house, it's like the messiest thing you can imagine. It's like boxes everywhere, everything's exploded. So it's like, they just moved in, but where's all their stuff? You know, it's weird. The body cam footage of Lori after that scene really is striking. And I'm a person who hates it when people say, look at their affect. It's just not right for the moment. But in this instance, it really is striking what her affect is like in the moment uh, right after she finds out that Charles had been, well, that Charles, Charles was dead. She didn't know at that point necessarily what happened, but it's really striking. When we first got body camera video, she is clearly smiling. She doesn't even ask if Charles is okay. Thank you, ma'am. Okay, hang tight, guys. Your husband just died. It's striking, and and I agree with you. I mean, it, it is hard to say, you know, they they acted wrongly or they acted the wrong way. Um, but it's very striking her her actions after the shooting. You know, going to Burger King, going and buying flip flops and sunglasses, and then coming back and just being so sort of laissez faire. It's very striking. And and it just goes to show that she's thinking, to me at least, that she's thinking about things in a different way and um, and maybe thinking that there's some some greater meaning or some greater calling to all of this. I mean, you do make great use of those police body cams. I mean, she makes these weird little jokes at these at these wrong times. How long have you lived here? Like three weeks. Oh, geez. Yeah. OK. That's why the neighbors don't want Gotcha. <laughs> like, hi, neighbor. Sorry. Is it possible that in the moment those could have just been a, a defense mechanism, like a function of being in shock or something? It's possible. Look, anything is possible. I mean, I think I think that what makes Lori sort of an interesting person is is how she does act. And I mean, even recently, like there's been new video come forward of her at hearings where she's laughing and giggling and and we don't know what's going on in her mind. But clearly the gravity of the situation strikes her in a different way than it strikes the majority of the rest of us. And and I don't know why necessarily. Maybe there is a greater meaning to it to her, but but she certainly doesn't recognize or doesn't show us that she's recognizing the seriousness of some of these situations. So in this whirlwind of this killing, you know, you can't 
to some extent, blame the police for thinking it may have been a simple case of self-defense. But knowing where things led, it does seem a little tidy to imagine that it was a simple case of self-defense, right? Yeah, I I really question it. I mean, it is very tidy. Um, it is. I I wish there had been a greater investigation into what had happened. Um, I think that that there was certainly um, this front of testimony from Alex from Lori that that gave an easy sort of solution. Um, I really wish that some more investigating had happened at that point. Okay, so Lori's family was religious, but at some point her faith began to change and evolve. Some say that she was in a, quote, doomsday cult. Would you call that accurate? Depends on how we define cult, I think, you know, and I think, you know, when, when I've thought about this a lot, because I think there are a lot of people that say you can have a cult of two people. I sort of think of it like that she, that this was the beginning of a cult that was poorly conceived and poorly executed. I don't know that, that they were necessarily trying to create a cult, but they were absolutely Chad and Lori were absolutely trying to gather people into this way of thinking. Um, I I think that it all, that they went too far too fast and it all came to an end before they were able to gather a lot of those people into their way of thinking. And if, if these murders hadn't happened, they would probably have a lot more people sort of marching behind them right now. So this is where Chad Daybell enters the story. And it strikes me that he's also a person who's like a center stage, kind of putting himself up on a pedestal, attention-seeking kind of person. And his pickup line isn't, you're the prettiest girl at the party. It's, there's a special place in heaven for you and I. And that worked, apparently. Yeah, it worked. And look, I mean, what's what's a bigger stage than heaven, right? Mm. And I think that's really so, you know, Lori goes through the Mrs. Texas pageant. She goes through Wheel of Fortune. You know, she's sort of the spotlight in her neighborhood, the pretty mom. And then so now she's being offered heaven and to be a queen in heaven. It's like she's constantly sort of one-upping herself and getting to this point of the greatest exaltation you can possibly have. And that was one of the most appealing things, I think, to Lori. What Charles was saying was that Lori thought she was a superior being and that she knew things we didn't know. But that's what everybody says when they're trying to say you're crazy. You know, you think you're God. Now, I could understand that being uh, told you're one of God's chosen ones, you know, might make you feel really special, but it also seemed to trigger something more malevolent inside of her or something. Um, What happened there? I mean, it was hard to sort of pin down, like, what that turn was exactly. I don't know. I mean, that's that's the big question to me about Lori Vallow is how did it go from believing so much about who you are, where you are, your place on this planet, your place in the greater universe, your place in spirituality to harming people. I mean, look, I think what she probably felt was that in order to free her children and to release them to a higher level of spirituality was a noble good thing. I'm projecting there. That's that's sort of the place that I've gotten to talking to the people I've talked to, thinking about Lori Vallow for the last three or four years, three years really. And and so that's what I think happened. But I just, I can't pinpoint where it was in Lori's life 
where that switch happened and how that happened. You don't think it's possible that it was just a question of getting them out of the way so that she could have this life with Daybell? I mean, certainly she could have, you know, but there's so many other ways to get them out of the way, you Mm -hmm. know? So it's like, I think there's got to be something. And I think, I think there'd be remorse if you just wanted to get rid of your kids. And so you could have this great life with this guy. There are other ways to do it. And then there would be some remorse if you, if you love them. And so I think it was, look, there's certainly some mental illness. I believe that comes into this, you know, that she is delusional, that she thinks, this earthly set of rules doesn't apply to her and that she exists in a, in a whole separate set of rules with zombies. We should mention zombies. Yes. (laughs) Zombies and the, and the whole rating system that goes along with the zombies, you know, that there are people who are light and there are people who are dark and, and their intention was to remove the dark spirits from the planet to make it better for the light spirits. And somehow Somehow, J.J. and Tylee got on that dark list. And Charles. One of the friends who provides insight into the lives of the Vallows and Daybells is Julie Rowe, who says that she has religious visions. The truth of it is, is that we, most of us on the planet have had past lives. There are some people that this is their first life as a mortal being, but most of us have had at least one other life, and I've had several. And I believe we are in the final days before Christ comes. Just speaking for myself, I don't think she actually spoke to Lucifer. Um, I'm curious, why did you decide to include her in the documentary? Julie Rowe has a very interesting perspective. And I think her her perspective certainly did align with Chad's for a period of time. She herself denies that it aligns now. But, but if you look back at her podcast, and she did a lot with Chad. And so they certainly had similarities in their thinking. And I think that I really wanted to include Julie in it to, to know what that world was like and to hear what that world was like and and not to have a voice of reason necessarily, not to have a voice of non-reason either, but to just get a sense of, of this world, how it exists, and that there are people who do exist in it. It's important sometimes to not always other, right? People who are in, living in a, in a world like this because, you know, she also, to talk to seems very reasonable. She's like, you know, you may think I'm crazy, but, you know, to me, I'm not. This is what I believe. This is what I see. And it is very tempting when someone talks about something like that to just other them. But I think your inclusion of her makes it so that that's not possible. And I actually really appreciated that. If other people said that to you? Nobody else has said that to me, but I have to say, I loved sitting down and talking to Julie. I mean, you know, and I walked out of talking to her going, she's not crazy. Um, she, you know, she has certain beliefs that don't align with my beliefs, but, but she's a very interesting, complicated woman. And, and she was generous and she had these amazing boots on, which I loved. And she (laughs) laughed. (laughs) Look, it's part of why I make documentaries too, because like never in any other profession at any other time, would I have the opportunity to sit in a room with Julie Rowe? And so for an afternoon one day, a couple of years ago, I got to sit down and talk to this woman who was completely different than me. And, and it was really, really an interesting perspective. 
I think it's also pretty easy to say that if you were to speak to somebody from another planet and lay out the belief systems of any religion, just line them up in a row, that person could say, that's crazy, and that's crazy, and that's crazy. I mean, you know, who's to say that one person's beliefs are any crazier than another, as long as they're a good person, generally speaking, with good boots, right? Right. (laughs) (laughs) So when Charles died, Lori told some people that he had a heart attack or that he killed himself. When Tammy Daybell died, what did Chad tell people had happened? He said that she died in her sleep. And we still we still don't know what happened to Tammy Daybell. My feeling is that that will come out in the trial. Um, they have done an autopsy. They exhumed her body. They've done an autopsy. Those autopsy results have not been released yet. There was some rumors that there was a pink sort of foamy substance coming out of her mouth that may indicate poison. Um, but the truth of the matter is right now, we don't know what happened, but he said that she died in her sleep. And so it's it's interesting to me because I, I don't know Chad's perception of what he told people, Chad's story of what he told people could be true. When Lori told family members that Charles had died of a heart attack, instantly people are going to know that's a lie as soon as they found out he was shot. So I don't know what it is that compelled Lori to lie because these lies they couldn't even be perceived as being true. Like you're right. going to know that it was a lie as soon as it's out of her mouth. I think she's almost incapable of telling the truth. I think her go-to response is to lie about things because it creates a drama. And I think she really, really, really loved that feeling of drama. Mm. It's like reflexive in the moment. It's performative. It's like everything is a performance, right? Exactly, exactly. I almost felt like reading that text message to his kids. It was like, I am playing the role of somebody telling children that their father has died. It didn't really feel like a sincere conveying of information. No, not a sincere conveying of information. And then just leaving it short so that they'd come back and leaving it short so they'd come back. Like it's like, it's, it's really stirring the pot and it's really causing people to invest even more in this story to create that drama so that she feels more important or feels more valuable. And, and she did it all the time. She did it with Colby. She did it with Charles son. She did it. She did it with everybody. She would, she would come forward with lies first and then be found out and there would be some, you know, some altercation. And that's almost what fueled her, I think. One of the things that amazed me was how quickly all of these events transpired. And your documentary, you do a wonderful job with a timeline in the documentary. So am I right that at the time Tammy died, nobody had yet realized that Tylee and JJ were actually missing? Yeah, yeah, that's true. That's really something. So the cops did keep coming back to check on Tylee and JJ. How was Lori able to talk her way out of all of those visits? I mean, I think a lot of it had to do with how Lori presents herself. I mean, I think, you know, she was flirtatious. She was chatting to the cops in a way that did not immediately bring any suspicion. And I think she was able to deflect things and come up with these lies so quickly and these answers for them that were absolutely lies that that they just didn't think anything of it. And they did keep coming back. And then finally, you know, we're like, wait a minute, this is just, this is a step too far. We've got to look into this more. But by that time, it was too late. It just occurred to me, you know, how relatively easy it would have been for her to call her friend and say, 
hey, listen, um, I have my kids at maybe a camp that my mother wouldn't approve of. And uh, so what I've done is I, I, I told a white lie and I said they were with you. I'm really sorry. So at least the friend, but she didn't even do that. Like there's no way the police aren't going to check. And she didn't even do that. What do you make of that? I mean, I think it's just an inflated sense of ego. Like she thinks she's untouchable. That's that's what I think. You know, she's gotten away with it many times before, you know, lying is her her sort of MO. And I just feel like she did not think anything bad would happen. So the news story blows up after Lori and Chad are spotted getting married in Hawaii. Again, a very tight timeline happening here. And the children are nowhere to be found. I'll never forget watching the video of my mom and Chad. Lori, Nate Eaton with East Idaho News. Can you tell me where your kids are? Where are your kids? No comment. That was the first time I ever saw him. Like at that point, he was like a, a fable. They've been missing for four months. You have nothing to say? I mean, there's people around the country praying for your children, praying for you guys. Why don't you give us answers? There are all these photographs of them having a beautiful time on the beach. Isn't that the part that really fanned the flames, that it looked like a mom didn't care whether her kids were dead or alive? Well, yeah. And what's interesting, too, about that, because that's when the pictures came out, they they had not yet found the children's bodies. Right. So the kids were missing at that point in time. And so that is what fanned the flames, that this mother can be married to this guy. Her kids are missing. She's not talking. What the hell is happening? What we come to find out later is that the kids were both dead before that wedding happened. And so, you know, there's how we sort of found out the information as the public sort of following the story, and there's how it all sort of happened. But either way, it it still goes to the same thing. Like, how could this woman whose children were missing or, as we find out later, dead, be enjoying her time on the beach as much as she was? I actually think it was, I think it was a little bit set up, that wedding and those photos. If you look at the photos close enough, you know, you can kind of see it and they feel like they're at least Lori is kind of putting on a play and that she's sort of acting for the camera. And I think that she had those p- pictures taken in order to, I don't know, maybe maybe show the world how happy she was and maybe deflect a little bit from the kids. But, um, but it seemed like she those pictures were very intentional. So the prosecution will present its case to a jury next year. Do you have any sense of what they will say their theory of the crime was? I mean, I have no sense. I I mean, I would imagine that Lori and Chad, that they will think that Lori and Chad sort of, you know, became embroiled in these very fringe religious beliefs. And it took them to a place of, I don't know. I don't know. I mean, that's my feeling that they, that it, they had such fringe beliefs and they committed these crimes because of those fringe belief, fringe beliefs, because they thought the kids are in a better place. The kids were zombies and they're freeing the kids of being zombies. It'll be interesting. I kind of think Chad may plea and Lori may not. Hmm. I don't know if it'll happen, but it seems as if, I don't know, I think that might happen. There are two views of Lori predominantly. There are people who see her as simply a selfish, religious kook whose kids were in the way of her happiness. And there are people who see her as having been manipulated by Chad into believing killing their spouses and her kids were a path to salvation in this life and the next. I'm wondering, uh, Sky, did your view of Lori change over the course of this project? Yeah, I think it definitely changed over the course of this project. I think 
she started seeing based on, you know, stories that Colby would tell us or that Janice would tell us. And in the research that we did, I sort of saw some of the stepping stones of this fame seeking sort of woman and how that grew throughout the course of her life and how it could have gotten her to this point of really sort of wanting more and how that wanting of more translated into something that was murderous. And she definitely changed to me. I think Lori exists in both of those worlds that you described. I think she wanted to get rid of her kids so that she could have this life with Chad. But I think that was that was also based in faith that she felt that she was freeing these kids to a better place. Because I do think that in whatever way Lori loves, that she did love those kids. I, I don't think it was the way a typical mom loves their children, but I think she felt that she did. And I just can't imagine her killing them unless she believed in something beyond this world that they would go to. Well, you've told a much more in-depth version of this story than any other that I have seen or heard. Sky Borgman, the documentary is Sins of Our Mother. Thank you so much for joining me to talk about it. Thank you so much. That's it for this week's episode. Thanks again to director Sky Borgman. For more of my takes, check out my other podcast, Crime Writers On. Each week on that show, we break down the latest in true crime documentaries, films, podcasts, and pop culture. If you like You Can't Make This Up, please rate and review this show and share it with your friends. Find us on Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, Google Play, Spotify, and wherever else you get your podcasts. And make sure to subscribe to the show to stay tuned for all new episodes. Our music is by Kelly Mack at Netflix Music Lab. You Can't Make This Up is a production of Netflix. I'm Rebecca Lavoie. Thanks so much for listening. <laughs>